Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. So there are only two states of being. And I, uh, just to recap what we talked about last time, um, we talked about Dante's having been uh, started out lost in a dark wood, and he doesn't learn the nature of that dark wood uh, until 63 uh, cantos later. In Canto 30 of uh, the Purgatorio, he learns from Beatrice that the dark wood uh, was a wood um, of his own making because he tried to reach salvation by himself uh, without the aid of divine love or divine revelation. And he doesn't know it at the time, uh, but he calls Virgil his lord and master and uh, uh, the author to whom he gave his soul for his salvation and all of these things. Virgil represents human reason. And so he was being very Pelagian uh, in his pursuit of his own salvation. Um, And you recall from the uh, debate between Pelagius and St. Augustine, uh, who won out, that grace is necessary for salvation. And God uh, is willingly, um, freely provides, he's freely dumping oceans of grace on us at any given moment. Even now, he is ladling oceans of grace directly into our souls. But most of us like to wear, um, uh, go around carrying umbrellas uh, because we got to be me, you know? Um, We we want our will to be done uh, rather than God's will to be done. And uh, so we try to do it on our own. And when we fail, uh, we know that God is there uh, looking for us to pick us up and bring us home. So there are only two states of existence. There's the state of sin and the state of grace. Today, we're going to talk about the state of sin. It's a state that humanity freely chooses for itself. As St. Augustine points out, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. When we shut God out of our lives and refuse to accept the grace that he freely offers, we cut ourselves off from the vine of life. Um, We cut ourselves off from the author of our lives. And if you uh, have ever seen the image of a person sitting on a tree limb, sawing the tree limb off, uh, where it's connected to the tree, uh, you have a sense of what happened to Satan uh, when he rebelled against God. He cut himself off from the sores of his life and crashed headlong into earth. In fact, so hard did he hit, like a bullet uh, hitting a big rock, uh, which is uh, a good image, uh, because um, so hard did he hit, the exit wound from that bullet hitting that big rock uh, displaced a lot of dirt. And that dirt stacked up on itself and formed Mount Purgatory. So in the very act of Satan's falling and crashing into the earth, Mount Purgatory was created, the way for man to return home to God. Now, all this happened, of course, before Adam and Eve were formed in the garden, uh, because uh, in Dante's Cosmos, he uh, puts the garden 
on top of Mount Purgatory. So uh, the place uh, where Adam and Eve were created, the place uh, in which God walked with man, is at the very top of, um, of this uh, long climb uh, that uh, every soul who dies in a state of grace, yet with, uh, uh, still with sins uh, for which he needs to atone, um, for which uh, he has not been remitted temporally of his punishment, um, these souls go. And eventually every soul makes it to the top of the mountain. And we'll talk about that next week when we talk about the structure of purgatory. And then from the top of the mountain, they're able to fly into paradise. We're going to start much lower today. We're going to start at the, um, at the banks of the river Acheron. And the river Acheron is the place where the souls of the damned congregate while they're waiting for uh, Charon, the boatman, to carry them across. Uh, will they meet Minos, who is their judge of the dead? So Minos will uh, provide them uh, their first judgment. And the way he does it, he whips his tail around his body a certain number of times, uh, according to the degree of guilt each sinner possesses. Now, each sinner is literally dying to confess what he did in life. And um, the uh, substance of his confession uh, is what enables the judge to place him. So if somebody were lustful and um, pursued uh, carnal um, activities uh, as the thing he, that motivated him, uh, the habit that he allowed to cultivate within his soul, uh, then that person would be dropped into circle two. Whereas if the person was a glutton, and uh, the person uh, lived to eat rather than ate to live, and that person would be dropped in circle three. So it's a, a very strong and uh, well-organized taxonomy. And if you notice uh, the way that taxonomy, uh, taxonomy works, hell is divided into three parts, uh, which uh, is sort of like the way uh, Caesar's Gaelic War starts out, you know, uh, where he says, Gallium est divisa in tres partes. France is divided into three parts. Hell has an upper hell, a middle hell, and a lower hell. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the structure of hell, uh, but importantly, through the lens of the disintegration of human community. So as we move through hell, you're going to see a number of things that are going to be of interest. And to Dante, they are of interest because they are the consequences of um, a great deal of abuse of human reason in a number of different ways. So uh, importantly, Dante's gonna see souls twisted and in pain. And he's not gonna think to ask for another 60 cantos what this means. Why are uh, incorporeal souls uh, demonstrating uh, very corporeal uh, pains? It's in Canto 25 of the Purgatorio where we find out why, and that's because Statius, whom he meets up there, explains it to him. He says, what you're seeing is the state of the soul manifesting itself uh, in uh, corporal terms so that Dante's mind can uh, get around what's happening. In short, uh, the soul uh, is twisted uh, not because uh, Dante's looking at a body that's twisted, 
but he's looking at the way in which that soul enabled itself or caused itself to wrap itself up like a pretzel almost in the twisting of it, its design. So uh, a good way to describe this is probably from a Disney film, um, The Little Mermaid. In The Little Mermaid, she sells her um, soul, as it were. Uh, she trades her voice for human legs. And as she's uh, singing uh, and working with Ursula the Sea Witch, uh, there are other souls trapped at the bottom of the ocean, uh, twisted up into plants. And uh, they're shriveled, and all the goodness has been sucked out of them. And uh, you'll recall the song, uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls. You know, she says, you know, I give them what they want, and if they can't pay up at the end, you know, what can I do? I have to collect. That's what Satan does. Satan will give you what you want, uh, but at the end, he has to collect. Uh, because the way evil works is it preys on the good. Uh, you uh, learn through um, the Purgatorio that all of sin and all of vice is like a cavity in uh, something that's whole. And the greatest cavity uh, is that which we find in the center of the earth, namely hell. So uh, that which is good uh, gets corroded and corrupted, and a cavity grows within it. And um, it's that cavity we're going to be exploring today that... Uh, no thing that St. Thomas calls uh, as a no thing or a nothing, which is evil. So it has no ability to create on its own. It has no ability to be on its own, except in the way that it prays and corrodes that which is good. Whereas that which is good is a creative force. So if what is good is creative and what is evil is manipulative, uh, then it stands to reason. Uh, that that which is evil can only manipulate that which is already created. And it is that that it tries to do. A number of years ago, I created a cartoon. I took a course at Webster University called Comic Life. And uh, on the screen, and for those in the uh, podcast audience, I'll describe what I'm showing. I used uh, free illustrations, uh, Doré, uh, some of the Blake that was free that I found online. A lot of Blake isn't free. Some other... Uh, art from uh, Ernesto Bellandi and Saloni Robertson. And I asked Saloni if I could borrow her stuff, and she said, sure. So all of this is uh, either in the public domain or there's permission for it. Uh, but my cartoon uh, starts off with Dante in the dark wood saying, uh, eh, anyone out there? And uh, three beasts block the short way out. He tries to get to this Mount of Joy, uh, which is uh, the met in metaphor seeking uh, salvation on his own, and uh, Virgil arrives after he says a short prayer. So remember last time we talked about Mary uh, being there at the beginning and being there at the very end. And uh, so Mary, this is a very Marian work. If you have a special devotion to our Blessed Mother, you are going to love Dante's Divine Comedy. So uh, the cartoon continues uh, with Beatrice talking to Virgil saying, I'm Beatrice. Bring Dante to me at the top of Mount Purgatory by Wednesday. And uh, Virgil says, yes, ma'am. And um, then Virgil later explains to Dante in Canto 2, that's why he has to take him the long way. And they meet Charon, and they head off into across Acheron into, uh, or into hell proper. 
in the cartoon, we've gotten through uh, the first page uh, where we started to enter into hell proper, uh, which is Dante walks through um, uh, the gates of hell and sees on the gate as he's walking through, um, I am the way to the city of woe. And then it ends with abandon all hope ye who enter here. Now he asked Don, he asked Virgil the meaning of this. And uh, Virgil points out in hell, nobody has hope of uh, ever receiving salvation, of ever being saved. They are going to remain as they are for all eternity because they died without grace. The very first stop that Virgil takes him to is limbo. And in limbo, uh, they find souls that are uh, those of virtuous pagans. Those souls die without grace, but they didn't really do anything wrong while they were on earth. They simply weren't baptized. They had no concept of uh, sin or the nature of sin or that one could actually offend one's creator. They saw Christ, every single one of them, when Christ came down during the harrowing of hell and saved all of the believers, all the people of the book, all of the Jews, uh, the people of the covenant. And they know what they're missing. They know that there's a better life out there. They know that there's a way for them to grow for all eternity in eternal and joyful communion with their creator. But they also know they can't get it. So their only pain is uh, that they have no hope. Otherwise, they're, they're living the good life uh, that uh, Socrates spoke about in Plato's Phaedo, where um, just a, uh, as he's going to die, he's going to drink the hemlock. He says, you know, it's not so bad. I've lived a life. Uh, where I'm going to go is going to be filled with souls, the great philosophers of the past, and I'll be able to spend my entire eternity talking with those guys and uh, having good conversations uh, and meaningful conversations. That's uh, what uh, Socrates' uh, vision is. And it's that vision uh, on which Dante based Limbo. So uh, when Dante gets there, he's going to see a couple of things. Uh, importantly, what he's going to see, a whole list of people uh, that he'll be using as his bibliography. He's going to see uh, five poets, and he's going to count himself, or he's going to say, they count me a sixth in their number. Five of the greatest poets of the past. Virgil's in there, of course, because uh, that's his group. And then there's Ovid, who wrote the Metamorphoses. Lucan, who wrote the Pharsalia. He's going to see Aristotle, whom he calls the master of all who know. So not only is he seeing poets, he's seeing the philosophers. And he sees a couple of Islamic philosophers, too. He sees um, Avicenna and he sees uh, Averroes. And uh, you wonder what these Muslims are doing in a Christian hell. Uh, well, there's more Muslims further down in hell. Uh, but these Muslims um, are considered virtuous pagans because they really weren't subscribed, they, weren't, they didn't subscribe so much to Islam as they pursued Aristotelian philosophy. And um, in fact, there was this guy named Al-Ghazali who wrote a book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers where he condemns them for being irreligious heretics because their uh, emphasis really was on uh, advancing the philosophy, or at least what they understood to be the philosophy, of Aristotle. So it makes sense that they're in that group as well. So we're going to stop here at the threshold of hell to point out three things I want to cover in today's talk. Uh, one is the nature of allegory, 
and you saw this in the uh, introduction to the book uh, that you have. And the introduction is freely available on the website. So if you go to onroadbooksandmedia.com um, slash narrative spirituality, uh, you find the introduction. Uh, but it talks about um, the fourfold level of allegory and Dante's use of metaphor. As you move through hell, you're going to read uh, it as a good story. That is, you're going to read it on a very literal level. Dante's lost in a dark wood. There's a few animals that block his path. Somebody comes and rescues him, and he goes into hell. He walks through hell, sees a lot of things, comes out on the other side of it uh, by climbing up Satan's shanks and uh, slipping up the other half of the earth right to the shore of Mount Purgatory. That's the story of the Inferno. If you just read it on a literal level, uh, you would still have a pretty good bedtime story. Of course, you might have uh, interesting dreams, uh, but it would be a good story nonetheless. But Dante brings in three other levels, and these are also the levels on which we can read sacred scripture. Uh, they're the symbolic level, or what we call the allegorical level, uh, allegory proper. Uh, there's the tropological level, or what we call the moral level. So it tells the moral of the story, how we ought to behave. And we call uh, what we call the anagogical level, the level in which uh, the meaning and purpose and uh, role of our salvation is explained. You know, um, how are we going to be saved? If you look at any of the things uh, that you've seen in Dante, all the way through hell, you see all four levels playing themselves out at the same time. So those three beasts that Dante meets are the beast of incontinence, uh, the, uh, the she-wolf of incontinence, the lion of violence, and the leopard of um, frog. Well, so they're not just three animals. They represent three different kinds of states within hell, or three different ways in which um, the human community can go awry. And this is the way in which hell is divided into three parts, just like the comedy is divided into three parts um, with uh, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. Hell is divided into upper, uh, middle, and lower. Upper hell is uh, filled with those uh, sins of the she-wolf or the incontinent. And uh, the incontinent include uh, those ways in which we allow the passions or our um, our uh, senses to run amok. So lust is the first level, uh, or is the, um, once we get past limbo, it's circle two. Gluttony is circle three, and avarice is circle four. And you can see a disintegration of community, which is the second point, through uh, these uh, levels. As Dante descends, community starts to break down. So that by the time you get to the very bottom of hell, there is no more community. Everybody who's there is uh, trapped and isolated in their own block of ice. With, with Limbo, you had people gathered together, talking, discoursing, engaging one another. They were not socially distancing, by the way. Uh, they were uh, high-fiving each other and all sorts of other wonderful things. The Circle of Lust, people are paired up. And you uh, meet two uh, star-crossed lovers, Paolo and Francesca. So Paolo and Francesca were reading, and they blame um, a romance novel for their uh, sin. And then the third thing is the difference between heaven and hell as a state of being rather than a question of habit. 
Um, we'll talk about that uh, on the way. And that is uh, the real difference is a state of grace and a state of sin. And uh, when you get to purgatory, you see the same vices uh, that you see in hell. Just a picture that I um, pulled up uh, from the internet uh, that enables us to talk about these three points. You can find maps if you just uh, Google um, Dante's Inferno or Dante's Divine Comedy. You'll find all kinds of maps pop up. Uh, Dante's Inferno is also the name of a popular video game. And so you'll see images of the video game pop up as well. Uh, but the video game isn't really true to life uh, in the sense that it's not true to the story. Uh, the video game, Dante goes into hell in order to save Beatrice, who's been abducted by Satan. Uh, but in the story, Beatrice uh, isn't actually concerned with Satan at all because she's in a state of grace. So she's up there in heaven, already saved. But this is one such map. You can see Limbo, uh, which is the Elysian fields of um, Plato's um, Phaedo. You can see Lust, which is the uh, next level. The reason why Lust is the least of all the sins, and um, it comes right out of Aristotle. So if you note that um, the entire inferno is really based on Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. So if you've read the Nicomachean ethics and you start reading the inferno, you're going to say, wow, this sounds really familiar. As I move through uh, the inferno, it's like I'm moving through the um, passages in Aristotle's work. Aristotle wrote to the beginning of the metaphysics, and this will help explain something about lust in the uh, Nicomachean ethics. He wrote that all men desire to know as evidenced by the delight they take in their senses. And the best of these is the sense of sight because it enables us to tell the difference between things. Well, that sense of sight is the sense through which when we apply it to the world, we see that the world is good. And uh, we see that the world is pleasing. And we see that things in the world are good and pleasing. It's uh, no great leap for us to see that uh, certain uh, persons in the world will appear to us as good and pleasing and incite within us certain passions. As we look upon other human persons, we may not look upon them in love, uh, as St. John Paul II talks about in Love and Responsibility. We may look upon them uh, as objects of use. And it's that object of use that is the characteristic of lust, where you look upon someone as a thing, as an object, uh, through which you are imagining, manipulating for your own gratification. So uh, this is why Christ says uh, that a man who looks upon a woman in lust has committed adultery with her in his heart, because he's already turned her into an object, even before he uh, physically uh, tries to manipulate that object, uh, which is what Paolo and Francesca do. Uh, they pick up a, a romance novel, uh, the story of Guinevere and Lancelot, and they begin to read it aloud to one another. And as they get into the story of how Guinevere and Las Lancelot's passion uh, escaped the bounds of prudence, uh, and they ended up in an adulterous affair through uh, Francesca's description, they set the book down and they didn't look back. And if this were a 1950s uh, movie, you would see the camera pan off to the right and settle on some uh, painting or something above the couch. Uh, because Paolo and Francesca became lovers at that moment. Now, Paolo was um, 
the brother-in-law of Francesca. According to the story, he went to get Francesca in order to bring him back so Francesca could marry his brother. Francesca mistook him for her actual groom and gave him her heart. And then when she found out that he was taking her back to marry his brother, uh, she went ahead and uh, did it because that's what she was supposed to do. But she never lost her true affection for Paolo. And so um, at, uh, when the opportunity arose, uh, she took advantage of it. And then uh, Paolo's brother came in, saw the two of them together, and then killed them. So uh, that's how they ended up in hell. Uh, but they end up in a hell uh, in which even the memory of their good time together uh, is painful to them. Uh, because it is also a memory of how they uh, fell into perdition and lust and lost the opportunity uh, forever to live in uh, eternal and joyful communion with God. Uh, but they brought it on themselves to their own free will. And even here, they are blaming, um, they, do, they fail to take responsibility for their own actions. They're blaming everything but themselves for this one. Importantly, they like themselves just the way they are that's the least of all the sins. And the reason why it's the least of all the sins is because it's natural for us to pursue that which feels good. Now, there's a natural law principle that uh, you may know of that comes into play here. That is, one of the first principles of natural law are that we pursue the good and avoid the evil. But sometimes we mix those things up and we pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And in our pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain, we think we're doing the right thing. Sometimes that which is pleasurable for us to pursue is not good for our souls. And sometimes the pain that we're seeking to avoid might be. But the natural law principle is to pursue uh, the good and avoid the evil. And everyone here failed to pursue the good. Uh, they pursued what felt good to them at a given time. From lust, uh, you can see that it takes a couple of people, at least, to be involved in that uh, kind of um, uh, vice. Uh, we come down to gluttony, uh, where in gluttony, uh, it really only takes one person to be involved in that kind of uh, vice. The one person uh, can consume uh, all the food around him and live to eat rather than eat to live. And for that, he doesn't need a partner. So at least in the world of lust, there is some semblance of community of two. Uh, not that they take any joy in each other's company. In the world of gluttony, uh, there really is only one that needs to be involved in that. And if you are too gluttonous, then it's not just that you want to draw food into yourself. You want to draw all kinds of things into yourself. And then you fall into the sin of greed. Uh, where you are either hoarding or wasting, uh, but you bring everything to you, and then you either sit on it like a dragon, or you uh, distribute it reckless, recklessly uh, for your own pleasure and sport. So we uh, are in vices now when we talk about avarice, and when we get a little bit lower into the vice of anger. So if I've got a lot of stuff I'm hoarding, if anybody tries to get near me or uh, to take it from me or anything, I'm going to lash out. And I'm going to lash out in either words or feelings or emotions. I'm going to um, express the worst of what uh, the philosophers call an irascible appetite. 
So before I was simply focusing on my sensitive or my sensual or my uh, uh, the, the appetite of my senses, and now I'm focusing on the appetite of my emotions. And uh, the philosophers call that the concupiscible appetite, which is the senses, and the irascible appetite, which is the emotions. And if people get too close to me and my verbal lashing out isn't effective, I'm going to get violent. So you can see the uh, disintegration of community involves um, pushing people away, uh, which is one of the reasons why First John uh, 4.20 says, um, a man who uh, says he loves God but hates his neighbor is a liar. The, of the two commandments uh, that Christ gave us, uh, the first is to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you are turning your neighbor into an object for your own manipulation and then hoarding all of um, the stuff and should be more liberally distributed, liberally in the, uh, in the classical sense of the virtue of liberality, uh, which means that you give the right amounts to the right people at the right times and for the right reasons, uh, then uh, you are being um, more than just a pill. You're actually engaged in a state of uh, sin wherein you choose uh, intentionally not to, um, not to accept the grace that God is freely providing. At the end of uh, violence, I'm going to skip over heresy a bit. Uh, heresy is the sixth circle of hell, uh, wherein uh, people have denied uh, dogmatic truths. Importantly, they deny the existence of a soul or of an afterlife. And they say, well, um, my soul is going to die with my body, so I don't really need to care for it uh, because I've only got this one life to live and I'm going to live this life to the fullest. So you end up uh, meeting a couple of characters in here, a guy named Farinata in Cavalcanti, who subscribed to that view. If you notice that um, in each of these circles so far, there's a principle at play called contrapasso. And contrapasso is uh, often defined as the punishment fits the crime. Uh, that is um, uh, the kind of afterlife you're going to uh, have for all eternity fits or is fitting with the kind of life you lived. So if you were a glutton and all you did was live to eat, then um, when you die and you're in hell, what you do is you continue uh, to engage in that activity, uh, but with um, rotten um, and uh, moldy snow on the, ground, on, the, on the floor of hell and you get uh, ripped apart by the dog Cerberus on a regular basis, who himself is the uh, archetype of gluttony. But contrapasso, uh, more classically defined, is simply this. And Capanius says it in Circle 7. It's the most succinct definition of contrapasso. He says, what I was alive, I am now dead. So the free will that God gives you, that you choose the eternity that you're going to live, um, that free will shapes your destiny. And so if your will is to do X, Y, or Z, God loves you so much that he lets you do that with or uh, without uh, joyful communion with him for all eternity. We've seen community disintegrate down to the level of violence uh, where people are uh, violent against, uh, souls are there who are violent against neighbor, against themselves, and against uh, God, nature, and art. The eighth circle is a circle of fraud uh, where people are intentionally trying to manipulate other people. And there's a few uh, good um, 
examples uh, that I'll pull from. There's 10 Bolgia down there, so there's 10 different examples. Uh, but I'll talk just about uh, two of them, the Simoniacs and the Grafters. So the Simoniacs are those who sold, bought and sold church offices, and the Grafters are those who were corrupt in politics, who were responsible for um, civil responsibility or had civil responsibility, yet um, used their power uh, in order to uh, gain uh, riches for themselves. These two uh, sins or these two um, ways of manipulating uh, their situation in life for their own benefit are um, part of the reason uh, why the world was in such bad shape. At least uh, as Dante was writing this, he's pointing to a lot of corruption in the church and to a lot of corruption in civil society. If you notice, the Simoniacs are in the third Bolgia, or the third uh, evil ditch, uh, called Malbolge, and the uh, grafters are in the fifth one. That means that grafting, or corruption against civil society, is a couple of notches worse uh, than uh, the abuse of uh, church office. And uh, the reason for that is, if you don't have a stable society uh, in which uh, people are able to uh, functionally live and work, uh, then you're not going to have a, a very strong, um, a, a strong foundation uh, for people to engage more meaningfully and intentionally in their lives of faith. So it's worse uh, for a civil society to be corrupt than it is for a church to be corrupt. That's a talking point. Then as Dante moves further down and out of the eighth circle, uh, as he moves further down in the eighth circle, community disintegrates even further. The thieves are attacking each other and ripping each other apart and stealing each other's bodies. Evil counselors are just tongues of flame and the um, counterfeiters are laying on the floor of hell uh, wallowing in their own um, pus. Uh, you end up with, uh, at the very bottom of uh, the eighth circle, with two characters in particular, uh, one named Master Adam and the other named Sinon the Greek, just uh, trading insults with each other. And uh, there's another soul in there that says, you know, if I could have gone after this other guy, if I could have moved an inch, I would, uh, an inch a, a century, I would have already started off after him now because I really didn't like that guy and I would beat him up. Not only um, uh, not in community with one another, uh, they're the anti-community because they're attacking each other even still. And in the ninth circle, in the circle of treachery, uh, which is on the floor of hell, uh, a circle of ice, because it's the furthest away from God's warmth and sweetness and light. In the ninth circle, uh, one uh, man, Count Ugolino, is gnawing on the head of another, Cardinal Ruggieri, uh, who locked him in a, um, in a tower uh, with his children and so that they all starved to death. Because uh, Ruggieri made, him, um, made Count Ugolino starve to death in life, uh, he becomes the uh, eternal food for him in death. And then there's Satan at the very bottom, who's the cause of it all, who is flapping his wings wildly, trying to escape his punishment. Uh, but the more he flaps his wing, the more he freezes uh, the rivers uh, that all flow to the bottom of hell. The uh, stronger he in, uh, and more intentionally he encases himself in the ice that's his prison. But everything that you've seen above is from his influence and the influence of the angels that fell with him. In terms of this being a work of high scholasticism, uh, Dante is providing a theocentric uh, worldview. The consequences of not loving God 
with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and not loving your neighbor as yourself is uh, an eternal struggle uh, in war against not only God and not only your fellow man, but also against yourself. And that is why um, uh, hell as a state of sin uh, is one uh, that can never be redeemed. Nobody ever gets out of hell. Purgatory as a state of grace is one in which one can uh, perfect the virtues that correspond to these vices, enable uh, one to uh, make oneself pure, perfect, and ready for the stars. Okay, so that's uh, my entire presentation. It was just a walkthrough on hell. One person wrote, I see why people of Dante's time thought that he had been through the afterlife because he has such amazing detail. It is a pretty incredible detail, but the detail comes from the texture. The fourfold level of uh, allegory uh, enables uh, the same um, uh, scenes to be read in different lights. Take, for instance, the scene of Paolo and Francesca. It's not just two star-crossed lovers who managed to commit adultery and were killed in the act. There's a moral level to it. That is, uh, one should not behave in this way. One doesn't uh, want to live the real consequences, the contrapasso of those actions. And there's an anagogical level to it. They didn't do, um, and perhaps they may have if they hadn't been killed in the act, if they had lived longer, a true act of love, or they weren't engaged in a true act of love with another human person. They were engaged in an act of use. So there's a woman named Kunitsa, whom we meet in the third sphere of heaven, who was very much engaged in uh, uh, sexual activity. Her whole life, she was like the woman at the well. She had lots of husbands and lots of lovers. And then one day, she saw through the, uh, one of the men she was with. She saw through the creation into the creator. And in seeing the creator, she suddenly realized that there was a greater beauty that caused the beauty to which she was attracted. And then she never went back. She began pursuing God from that moment. And so she doesn't end up in hell. Uh, she trades her state of sin uh, through uh, reconciliation and through faith by doing whatever Christ tells her. I was wondering, you were talking about like the disruption of community, especially as we move through hell. I was wondering how um, those who committed suicide, how they sort of fit into that like model or like the idea of thinking about like the disruption of the community. I was thinking about the people in the circle of the suicides, the ones who've been changed into trees. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, if you go back to uh, uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and uh, thank you for, uh, uh, for uh, zooming in on a particular area of the uh, seventh circle. That's an important one. Um, all of the uh, sins, in that area of the seventh circle are sins of violence. Aristotle believed uh, that one could never be uh, commit an act of injustice against oneself uh, because uh, uh, anything that a person does is a pursuit of the good for that person. So we only pursue the good. Uh, the, where we get into trouble is that we pursue the partial good or the good for me now kind of good, not the true good who is a person who is Jesus Christ. When these souls killed themselves, they didn't commit an act of injustice against themselves. They committed an act of injustice against their community. This is where uh, Aristotle writes uh, that um, 
as suicide is really destroying the social fabric of which he's a part or of which she's a part. So if the social, if a person is integrated into society, that person's there for a reason. That person is a functional part of that society because that person's a part of a family or a part of a um, community or whatever. So for that person to rip himself out completely, it creates a hole like you would find a hole in a spider web, uh, mm -hmm. a hole in a quilt. Uh, a, the fabric of society has been ripped apart and there's the sin against society. Yeah, that answers it really well. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're, you're going to have this question again. And that's when we're on, um, when we reach purgatory. In purgatory, the guardian of the shore is a guy named Cato, Cato of Utica. Cato um, killed himself. He's a suicide. So the question is, why isn't he among the suicides in the seventh circle of hell? It comes to why he killed himself. So Cato killed himself uh, because he was opposed to Caesar. Uh, when Caesar uh, crossed the Rubicon and took power, Cato fought against him, and uh, everybody in Cato's faction ended up getting killed. So um, Cato didn't want to serve an un what he believed was an unjust and tyrannical ruler. So he took his own life uh, for the sake of freedom. And because there was no society uh, that he was ripping apart by the taking of his own life, he was uh, punished less severely. And so he ends up being a guardian on the shores of Mount Purgatory. Now, the question is, will he ever get to go to heaven? Who knows? He doesn't get to climb the mountain. And his role seems to be simply to point people to the top of the mountain, to how they can find uh, salvation without ever being able to go himself. Uh, an interesting anecdote is that he woke up after he killed himself, after he like stabbed himself, and his friends had found him and pieced him back together and sewed him up and, uh, and, and, uh, and tried to fix him. He woke up and he saw that he was still alive and he reaches into his bowels with his own hands and starts flinging uh, his uh, intestines at people and then dies. And not exactly the best way to go, uh, but, um, but uh, if, uh, you, you would say that if that's the case, if he did have friends who were trying to bring him back, then he shouldn't have killed himself. He should be in the seventh circle rather than the short of Mount Purgatory. Did Dante or his family experience any persecution for placing certain real-life people in hell? Uh, the short answer to that is no. Uh, not that any that I've found. Dante uh, placed uh, real-life people in hell, uh, and he explains, he said he did this uh, not because he actually believes they're in hell, but because they fit certain archetypes that people of his time would know. If you recall, Dante is writing this book for the common man. And so he's writing in the Italian vernacular. But importantly, he's not writing for the common man. He's writing for women. And uh, the way you know that is uh, all love poetry at the time was written for women in the vernacular, in Italian. And it was uh, done that way because women were not educated in Latin. And so had he been writing just for men, uh, he would have had no trouble writing it in Latin. But he wanted to write a love poem. And he had to use the vernacular. It was widely distributed and widely disseminated. And he said, if I'm going to write this at such a popular level, I can't choose examples that people won't know. I have to choose examples that people will remember seeing. Oh, yeah, I saw this uh, guy, Chiaco. He was always uh, a very big, fat guy eating everything in the world. And uh, he would hang out at the coffee shop all the time. Everybody saw Chiaco. 
Chaco is Italian for pig. It's not his real name. Um, but they knew what he was talking about. Uh, Paolo and Francesca, they would have known the story, uh, even though that would have been, um, that story would not have been uh, the most contemporary story. Uh, but it's like you read about um, our celebrities in Hollywood and the kinds of things that they're up to on a regular basis. And uh, people talk uh, smack about them or not. It makes for popular uh, literature and tabloid news. Dante died a natural death. He didn't have anybody hunt him down and say, I can't believe you said that about my sister, you know, and then uh, uh, knock him down. So why are the lazy in the same realm as the angry? Uh, when you say lazy, you mean sullen, because that's another form of anger. Uh, there are two kinds of anger, uh, just like there are two kinds of, um, of avarice. So avarice uh, falls into the hoarding or the wasting kind. Anger falls into that which lashes out and is always angry all the time at anybody who comes along, and the sullen kind. And the sullen are those who bury all the anger inside. You know sullen people. They aren't um, uh, flagrant about their anger. They aren't loud or noisy about their anger, but they allow it to eat them on the inside like, uh, uh, like some kind of weird acid corroding their souls. So... In the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, Aristotle talks about these two kinds of anger, the sullen and the uh, wrathful. He talks about the two kinds of uh, avarice, the hoarders and the prodigals. He says, though, that the uh, lustful and the gluttons, there's really only one kind of each. And the reason is uh, people tend to pursue excessive pleasures more than not, more than otherwise. And if they're pursuing excessive pleasures, uh, they're pursuing too much food, or they're pursuing too much sex. They're generally not moving in the other direction. Um, now, he didn't know about uh, anorexia or anhedonia, which are uh, psychological disorders, but he would have considered those, if they were explained to him, as disorders, uh, not as free choice. Um, can you speak as to why hell is so ordered when sin is rooted in disorder? Oh, because God is the architect of the entire cosmos. And so everything has an order in a place. Uh, sin is rooted in disorder, but sin is rather, um, rather banal. You know, I mean, there's only uh, so many ways to sin. And uh, when we do it, uh, we are doing it in, uh, as contrary to our reason and as contrary to our faith. And we usually know when we're doing it, uh, because if we know when we're doing it, uh, that's usually where we end up at the confessional sometime later. And, and uh, and seek reconciliation. But uh, it's, it's a good question about the disorder of sin uh, as properly taxonomized in a rather ordered universe. Maybe you spoke of the structure of the Divine Comedy last week. I wasn't here, sorry. Uh, but did Dante write it in three parts, hell, purgatory, and heaven in that order? He did. He began writing uh, the Inferno in 1308. And he sets it in the year 1300. So that way he's got some historical perspective where he can make predictions, such as uh, uh, when he's in the eighth circle of hell among the Simoniacs, he comes upon Nicholas III, who was a pope. And he has Nicholas III ask him, is that you, Boniface? Well, Boniface didn't die until a couple of years later. But Nicholas III asking about him means that he fully expects that Boniface VIII, who was pope at the time of the year 1300, and who was uh, Pope in the year that uh, Dante uh, ended up being exiled from Florence, uh, would show up. 
And so it's uh, Dante's way of demonstrating that the behavior of Boniface VIII was simoniacal. He was letting everybody know in his writing that, that he fully expected, uh, though he couldn't order it himself, that he fully expected that um, Pope Boniface would be joining Pope Nicholas. One pope that he put in hell uh, was Pope Celestine V. And Celestine V was pope just before Boniface VIII came along and who abdicated the papacy. He actually uh, resigned. He said, I just can't handle this anymore. And through his resignation, Pope Boniface Boniface VIII was uh, able to be elected pope. And he believed that um, so much evil came from Boniface VIII's being pope that Celestine V likely had to pay for it somehow. And so he puts him in the vestibule of the undecided uh, on their way into hell. He sees him. Pope Celestine V was actually uh, uh, canonized uh, some years later in 1321. So Dante knew the guy had been canonized, but didn't go back and rewrite it. In 1314, Dante finishes the Inferno and publishes it. In 1315, he publishes the Purgatorio. And so you kind of expect that there was some overlap there. He didn't publish the Paradiso until, uh, he didn't finish it until 1320. So exactly 700 years ago. And uh, the reason why Dante D was named in Italy this year as March 25th, the day of Dante, which is the day um, that was purportedly Easter Sunday in the year 1300. uh, And which is the entire reason for the Help Dante Help Italy website. It was in celebration of Dante D one of the uh, inspirations that made us think of doing this project. Uh, and then in, um, when he finished the Paradiso uh, in 1320, uh, it came uh, into publication in 1321, and then he died in that year. So that's the order. Next one, Aristotle was all about the city-state as perfect form of community. Does this carry into uh, and influence the comedy's view of community? It does. So um, you see the city-state's... Um, prominently featured uh, in the Flowering Valley um, in per- Mount Purgatory, uh, around Cantos 7 and 8 and 9. Uh, 7 and 8, really. Uh, Dante meets a man named Sordello, who talks about uh, what is the perfect form of community. If you look at the characters, there are three characters in each of the canticles that talk about community and politics. Uh, in uh, the sixth circle of hell, Dante meets Farinata, Farinata was the lone voice that saved Florence. An invading army wanted to uh, destroy it. Uh, Farinata uh, represents Florence. Sordello represents Italy. And Cacciaguida, uh, whom you meet in the uh, fifth sphere of paradise, represents all of heaven. I mean, all of um, Christendom. So you've got uh, ascending levels of community uh, from Farinata through Sordello and through uh, Cacciaguida that talk about the city-state as the perfect form of community. When Virgil tells Dante he can't look at Medusa because he would never again return to the light or would never be able to be saved, what is this referring to? Um, Virgil says uh, there's an evil upon which man cannot look and live. When Medusa starts to show up at the gates of the city of Dis, uh, Virgil not only tells him not to look, but covers his eyes so that he won't be able to look. And this is uh, an allegory of human reason preventing us from falling off the edge of our our salvation, of our ability to be saved. So uh, I wouldn't wouldn't say it's any more than that. 
uh, outside of there being a certain evil upon which one must not look and live. And you can kind of see um, uh, Virgil popping up uh, with stories of this throughout uh, all of hell. You know, the, the moral to the story is uh, don't uh, put yourself in a position, in an occasion of sin, uh, where you're not going to be able to get yourself back out of. And that is, uh, the simpler version is simply avoid occasions for sin. Sorry, I had a question. You were talking about Virgil as sort of, you know, like, the, I guess the embodiment of reason. What do we like think of like some of those sequences in like hell, especially where um, Virgil makes mistakes, like trusting the uh, Malabranch, those demons, for instance. Is What does that say about like human reason, I guess, is what I was asking. Oh, sure, it's fallible. Remember, God gave us two um, uh, wings. Uh, faith and reason that uh, John Paul II talks about in Fides et Ratio. Both wings together help buoy us up to the light of truth, uh, who's a person uh, who's Jesus Christ. You may remember in St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, where he's talking about law and talking about conscience. He says, even an erring conscience binds. Because even if you think that you must do something, and you have a, a dictate of conscience telling you that you ought to do it, and you don't do it, then you're disobeying uh, what you believe to be a divine imperative. But in order to avoid an erring conscience, you have to have your conscience formed in the mind of the church. And that is uh, through uh, sacred scripture and through sacred tradition as uh, interpreted by the magisterium. And the magisterium. Uh, is uh, comprised of the popes and the bishops, uh, not the, uh, the average theologian. The mistakes that Virgil makes are, um, are uh, human mistakes. And uh, Virgil, uh, when he gets to purgatory, will even tell Dante, you know, I can tell you about the relationship between free will and love, but I can't do a perfect job of it. I can tell you as far as human reason can tell you or teach you, uh, but for the fullness of the response, you're going to have to ask Beatrice in heaven. And what he means is that human reason can only bring one so far to carry us the rest of the way. We need divine revelation. We need somebody to teach us things that we can't figure out on our own. Um, now, in some cases, Virgil is uh, making mistakes because he doesn't remember things well or things have changed since the last time he was there. So in his first mistake, he's standing at the gates of Dis. And he can't, um, he, they won't let him in. And so he, he's not certain that's a mistake. He's like, I don't understand. Uh, I was told to take you all the way to the bottom. They're not letting us through. I don't exactly know what to do here. What happened? So the first time he went, that gate wasn't locked. He didn't know it wasn't going to, it was going to be locked uh, on his way down there. Um, but then Jesus came and burst through the main gates of hell. And you can see this because the gate's broken. Uh, then collected a lot of the souls in limbo, and then left. Well, hell was harrowed, and the demons were not appreciative of that. So they regrouped down at the gates of the city of Dis and refused to let anyone in a state of grace back through. Um, and we can tell in their response to Virgil, they said, you who are dead, you can come, but you, if you come in here, you're going to have to stay in here. We're not going to let you back up. Uh, he who's not dead cannot come through. 
And uh, the reason uh, for that is Virgil's now dealing with a variable he never had to deal with. He's got a soul with him, a, a person who is still in his body, who is still, who is in a state of grace. And so it takes an act of God to open those gates. And as soon as um, they both uh, start wondering, okay, somebody needs to come and save us, Mary sends an angel. Angel comes through with a wave of a wand, knocks open the gates, and then leaves. I mean, it's, it's nothing for the angel to do this because uh, hell has no power against heaven. Uh, hopefully uh, that uh, helps. You'll, you'll find some other uh, spots that aren't so easy to notice. Like um, Virgil says to Dante at one point, you know, if you uh, continue to um, uh, feel pity for these diviners, for instance, I'm going to have a real quarrel with you because Dante looks at these souls in the fourth bolgia of the eighth circle. And they're walking around with their heads twisted around their bodies because they tried to see the future and they were unable to do so. Uh, or they, you know, they tried it. Well, um, part of that is Virgil's trying to um, avoid the stigma of him, his own association with being a, a diviner, with being a sorcerer. And the stigma came about for a couple of reasons. One, we already know that one of the reasons why Virgil makes a good guide is he's been to the bottom of hell already. Because the uh, witch, Erichtho, summoned him to go down there and find out the outcome of a battle. So he was forced to go down there as a tool for somebody else's manipulation um, uh, to learn uh, uh, the future. Um, so he doesn't like the idea that he might be associated with the diviners. As well, he's from the town of Mantua. And Mantua was named after Manto, who was a great diviner. Um, so uh, if you didn't know that, you would just think, oh, uh, Virgil seems to be in a situation that he can't handle right now. But there's a real reason for it. He doesn't want the implication to hit him. The same implication that's about to hit Dante when they go down to the fifth Bolgia and they're among the grafters. Because the reason why Dante was kicked out of uh, Florence, or at least the stated reason, was that he was corrupt. And as a corrupt politician, um, the, he would have been a prime target for those demons who are ripping apart grafters. Dante's trying to demonstrate that he's innocent uh, by walking through them uh, and not being ripped apart by them. Uh, but he's nervous that they're going to think he's a grafter anyway, in the same way that Virgil was nervous that people would think that he was a diviner. So, I mean, there's a lot of um, uh, interconnections in those stories uh, that if you just read it on a literal level, you won't find them. Uh, you have to read it on an allegorical level or on a moral level uh, to understand where the um, uh, where the uh, thing is coming from. So hopefully that answers, uh, at least in part, that question. Although hell is about distorting community, why is there uh, the city of Dis inside of hell? What goes on in there? Well, you got to think of the city of Dis in this case as like the city of New York. Is it like pandemonium in Paradise Lost where demons hang out? Sort of. Um, so there, there are demons on the wall, uh, and demons are the fallen angels. And I got into a discussion about this with my friend Michaela Ferry. And I said, well, you know, there's aren't really any demons on the walls of Dish. You don't see them until the eighth circle. And she pointed out, she said, well, no, I mean, they're, they're hanging out there on the walls, um, but they're not really featured as much. Furies are, and Medusa is, and the uh, the other Gorgons. So the demons do go up to uh, the upper levels of hell into the into the wall. But uh, why is there a city? Well, a city is a city of man. And if you remember um, 
St. Augustine's work, The City of God, the city of God is opposed to the city of man in um, some ways. Uh, the city of man is the city that uh, where men think that what we do, uh, we should choose our own laws, um, even if they're at variance with natural law. So civil law doesn't necessarily have to match up in the city of man with natural law. And we see that in a secular culture in which we live that's made up of conventional laws. Social convention uh, enables a certain kind of legal positivism. So if you get a bunch of people sitting around a table and they're not bound by any um, natural law or moral law that governs them, then they can make up their own laws. And you can see that uh, in the fact that we have laws for abortion uh, that allow abortion and in New York, allow abortion up to one's birthday. So a child at nine months who's about to be born can still be killed as long as he doesn't take a breath. And um, the reason for that is our country defines a human person as one who has been born. Uh, prior to birth, we define that um, entity as, a, uh, as property. And so um, basically it's another form of slavery. In a, in a slave system, a person isn't a person, a person is property. A person's uh, maybe three-fifths of the person for the sake of, uh, uh, for the sake of uh, uh, taxation purposes, uh, but property nonetheless. Well, here um, in our culture, we have laws allowing homosexual marriage, uh, which goes against natural law that... Um, uh, that would say that marriage has to be between, between a man and a woman is really a covenant made with God. And this is why the man and the woman can be ministers to their own marriage, because they're ultimately not marrying one another as much as they're um, uh, entering into a, a state in, that God has agreed that they're going to come together as one flesh. So they're married to one another with God and the covenant as part of that marriage. That's what keeps it going. So if they can't pursue one another, they can simply begin to pursue God, and on a pyramid, they'll meet, you know, um, as both pursue God more intentionally, um, uh, they will, uh, but it, that's, it's not possible to do that uh, in a homosexual marriage. Uh, there's no way that kind of relationship can uh, uh, be reconciled with the design uh, for which we were made. That goes back to Genesis. Uh, that goes back to um, uh, to what Christ was saying about the uh, permanency of marriage uh, as one that should be fruitful and um, that should enable us to multiply. And and uh, the homosexual community say, well, there's different ways of being fruitful uh, than uh, the ability of two homosexuals to uh, come together and um, and engage in an activity uh, that will result in the generation of a child. But that would be a different, uh, that would be an example of how uh, social convention uh, usually uh, is at variance with uh, natural law. So there's the city of man. So hopefully that, uh, that addresses that. Now, Paradise Lost is different. Now, notice the Mil when Milton wrote pa Paradise Lost, he wrote a, um, a story about a devil that was a real post-colonial kind of demon, you know, um, in Paradise Lost, uh, Satan uh, is one who has a uh, who doesn't want to be governed by what he believes is a tyrannical government anymore. He wants to be free and establish his own law, and um, he's got a lot of latitude and a lot of room to do that. 
and a lot of room to bring other demons into this new society, this new world order he wants to create. In Dante's um, cosmos, Satan is completely impotent. Uh, he can't even get out of the, tra uh, the trap into which he's plunged himself. Uh, what remains is his influence in the world. And you can see that in the form of uh, that he's surrounded by souls that he's used up, um, who are traitors like himself. And he's chewing on three of them in his mouths. And he's got three heads. And uh, uh, one of those souls is Judas Iscariot. Um, and the other two souls are Brutus and Cassius. So Judas uh, betrayed uh, the Lord our God, and Brutus and Cassius uh, betrayed the civil society. Uh, they betrayed Caesar, uh, who, was who was the established order at the time. So um, hell is always seeking to uh, destroy an established order, but finds that it can't really do it because it's contextualized within uh, the order of the universe, as was pointed out earlier. Uh, hell is very organized, but it's filled with very disorganized sinners. The Inferno ends with Dante climbing down Satan's shanks and climbing up into the light with Virgil on the shore of Mount Pur uh, Purgatory. That's how the can canto ends, or the canticle ends. So uh, that's where we pick up next time, standing on the shores of Mount Purgatory, looking up at this incredibly immense mountain that we're going, to we're going to climb and realizing the freedom that we have from this state of sin. So Purgatorio is uh, much uh, freer and lighter and um, engaging of hope than hell was. In hell, there was no sense of hope, except we knew that Dante was a soul in grace who would get through it. Uh, if you're reading the Purgatorio, the best spots to read include uh, the second canto, where Dante's talking to Casella, one of his friends, and then he and all of the, all of the people from that boat are chased off the shore by Cato. Um, the Flowering Valley, or the Valley of the Kings, uh, which is canto seven and eight, where we learn more about the political situation, about Dante's understanding of the city-state. Canto uh, 9, where Dante is taken up by the angel. Now, um, Purgatory is, and he's taken up by the angel to Peter's gate. Purgatory is um, divided into three parts. There's anti-purgatory, there's purgatory proper, and there's the Garden of Eden. In purgatory proper, we find three ledges. There's seven total ledges that correspond to each of the seven deadly sins. Three ledges are ledges of defect of human love. Um, and those ledges are pride, envy, and wrath. And then we find a ledge where there's the um, neglect of human love. And that is um, the ledge of sloth, where the uh, corresponding uh, virtue is, uh, is zeal, holy zeal. And then the three above it are excesses of love, where uh, people loved too much the created thing and not enough the creator. And that is avarice, um, gluttony, and lust. And if you look at the structure of purgatory, it's an inverse structure of hell. That is, um, in hell, you start from lust and you work your way down to uh, envy and pride. In purgatory, you start at pride and you work your way up to lust. The difference is 
the presence of grace in purgatory. Um, those are souls there who have uh, made um, a choice to pursue and to allow grace to work within them, to pursue their salvation through Jesus Christ. And so they've got to uh, uh, spend time uh, filling their cavities, uh, those things that are currently filled with pride and envy and wrath, uh, with the corresponding virtues and allowing the virtues of humility and charity and um, meekness to shine forth all the way up the mountain. So that's what we'll be doing next time. I am uh, incredibly pleased at um, uh, the uh, the interest that's being shown in this uh, in this subject from uh, from you guys. So thank you so very much for your hanging in there uh, through week two. We have another four weeks of this. Good times ahead. Um, would somebody like to close us in prayer? If no one wants yeah. to pray, I'm happy to. No, 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 Shane, 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 we're Dominicans. We always give the offer to other people to pray first until they demonstrate that they don't want to pray, and then we take over. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, go ahead, Shane. Let's teach them um, how to say goodbye. Let's end in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be together tonight uh, in community, in this semblance of community uh, that we're able to do through technology. Uh, we thank you for that gift that allows us to do this, uh, especially as we tonight study and grapple with this concept of, uh, of disunity, um, of discommunity. We ask that you would always turn our hearts to, uh, to be more receptive to the ways that you're drawing us closer to you, uh, to the perfect unity of the Trinity. Uh, and we ask that in these next four weeks that you will um, enlighten not only our minds, but also our hearts, so that we can love you and serve you and your church more fully. Uh, we pray, as always, uh, for the intercession of our Blessed Mother, and we ask her intercession upon us, uh, and a special prayer uh, over all those who are dealing with illness, uh, especially the coronavirus, and those whose families are affected. Uh, be with them and bring them solace and peace. We pray this all in your most holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.